quoted this particular quote before, but this is, this is, he wrote this in the first chapter. I think it's the first sentence in the first chapter of his well-known book called The Knowledge of the Holy, which is a book about the attributes of God, one of the best that I've ever read. But he, he writes this. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And that's Christian or not. He goes on to say, though, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most threatening fact about any person is not what they at a given time may say or do, but what they in their deep heart conceive God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. So to know what you think about God is extremely important because that is the image that you are going to move toward. So what comes to your mind when you think about God? Is he righteous? Is he just? Is he merciful? Is he holy? Is he savior? Or is he distant? Is he silent? Is he cruel? Is he indifferent? Is he unreliable? Or maybe you've just done this. Maybe you've shrunk God down so he can fit in your pockets and you can take him out whenever you need him. Or maybe you've shrunk him down small enough that he's now become irrelevant to you. And matters to your life nothing. Well, today in our text, through Abraham's dialogue with God, we learn a few things about God that will help us to think more rightly about him. Because it's these things that Abraham knows about God that makes him able to walk with him in an understanding way. So Abraham is not, is not relying upon his own merit. He's not relying upon his, his, his good behavior or even his obedience. What Abraham is ultimately reliant upon is his knowledge of the holy. He's reliant upon who God is in his own mind. So he knows these things to be true. These three things that we have before us that are there in your notes. That God is righteous. That God is just. And that God is merciful. God is righteous, God is just, and God is merciful. Now, if you remember from last week, Abraham is God's friend. And just like a good friend that you have, you know how that friend operates, even though you may not know everything about them. You don't know, know all of the secrets that they have. You don't know, know all of the intricacies of their heart. But you do know enough because they're your friend. So you know enough to say to, to someone who doesn't know them, um, that hasn't met your friend, to say, uh, oh, that's so-and-so, and that's the way she is. That's the way she operates. That's her personality. That's, that's who she is. That's who I know her to be, and that's why I love her, and that's why she's my friend. Well, this is how Abraham is with God for us in the text this morning, because we are allowed to be, to be a fly on the wall in the midst of their conversation to learn these great things about this God that Abraham serves. So the first thing is, is that God is righteous. 
So the first two points of our outline derive from two key words that we find in the passage, righteous and judgment, righteous and judgment. And this is key because the psalmist tells us that that these are things that God loves. He loves righteousness and justice, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 33, 5. And, And that righteousness and justice are actually the foundation of his throne in Psalm 89, 14. So to understand God's justice and God's mercy, you have to understand first that God is righteous. So what does it mean when we say that God is righteous? So a a good overarching definition, because there are a few aspects in righteousness, so this is kind of an umbrella definition of righteousness, is this, that it's the divine attribute that describes God as acting always in a way that is consistent with his own character. It's the divine attribute that describes God as acting always in a way that is consistent with his own character. So this is important to our text today because that's exactly what we see God doing. He's acting in a way that is consistent with who he is. He's acting in a way that is consistent with his character because righteousness is essential to to God's very being, and it characterizes all that God does. Even in the acts that we'll see performed by God towards Sodom and Gomorrah next week, we can say with confidence that God is acting in a way that is consistent with who he is, which is exactly how you want him to act. To act in any other way, for God to act in any other way would make him fickle and unreliable. We, we wouldn't know what to expect from one day to, to the next if God were not consistent in who he is. I mean, this is how the Greeks and the Romans thought about their gods. They never knew what they were getting from one day to the next because everything that happened was determined on the mood of their gods. As one writer said, the inhabitants of Mount Olympus, where the Greek gods lived, were cruel and fickle, passionate and vindictive, jealous and insecure, petty and insane. Not so with the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible doesn't even compare to these gods. You read places like Hebrews 13.8, describing God the Son, says that uh, God is the same yesterday Today and forever. He never changes. He's always consistent. You know what you're going to get from a day-to-day basis. Which means he is consistent to his righteousness. So how do we see God's righteousness in verses 16 through 19? Well, one of the first things to mention here that is, that is pretty cool to look at, and maybe you caught it, is the, the condescension of the Lord uh, here in verses 17 through 18. So God says, uh, he's speaking to the, to the two angels that are there with him, and, and Abraham is there uh, hearing this conversation happen. So these, are, these are the same uh, three people who have come uh, that we learned about last week who have come to tell Abraham this great news about this, his son that is go- going to be born in a year from, the, from now. And so they're still here. And so, uh, so God says to these angels, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham 
shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So Abraham is being let in on this heavenly conversation between God and a couple of angels. And this shows us that there's a special relationship that God has with Abraham. That God speaks as if, he, as if to conceal these things from Abraham would be wrong. That's the language of friendship. Listen to what uh, David, who is another friend of God, says in Psalm 25, 14. David writes, the friendship, uh, or, or, or you could translate this, uh, the secret counsel. So the friendship or the secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. So here's Abraham, a friend of God, having this secret, secret counsel with the Lord. So the fact that the two angels kind of, they move on to what their duty is supposed to be, which is to go to Sodom and Gomorrah, which we'll learn more about next week. And God stays with Abraham, speaks to this as well, speaks to this, this, this heavenly relationship, this heavenly friendship that Abraham has with God. So here we have Abraham and God Almighty alone on the mountain together, overlooking this sinful city. They're looking down upon it together. So God, uh, th- and this is where we see God's righteousness revealed to Abraham. So God basically gives Abraham a lesson on what this means in relation to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he does this by telling Abraham that judgment is coming to this great city. This is what he's revealing to Abraham. This is what only him and the angels of heaven knew. He's saying, I am bringing judgment to this wicked city. So God communicates his purpose to Abraham. And in communicating his purpose to him implies this great responsibility that comes with this relationship in verse 19. Look there with me. God says, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. So already we see Isaac has not come yet. Isaac has not been born. Abraham's just been told that he's going to have a son. But already God is laying out this plan for Abraham's, not only Abraham's son and children, but their grandchildren as well. This is what they are going to do. Hold on, my notes just got a little, little messed up here. This is interesting. So here we go. So fundamentally, God wants the righteous to understand his righteous way. So hang with me on this. God wants the righteous to understand his righteous ways so that the righteous can tell others about the righteousness of God. So that's what's happening here with Abraham and God standing on this mountain overlooking this wicked city. God wants the righteous to understand his righteous ways so that the righteous can tell others about the righteousness of God. So how does this announcement tell of God's righteousness? Well, using our definition from earlier, it's God acting with consistency according to who he is. So God must act with consistency uh, in accordance to his character in regards to sin specifically. 
But this is a common theme throughout the scriptures. Uh, Abraham says in verse 25, when you look ahead there, that the judge of all the earth shall do right. And then looking forward to the New Testament where Paul declares in 2 Timothy 4.8 that the Lord is the righteous judge. Now this is getting into our second point a little bit, but, but righteousness and justice are, are kind of two sides of the same coin. They go hand in hand, as you'll, you'll see what I mean as we kind of move through the text. Because the Old Testament actually has two principal words that it, use, that, that it uses for the word justice. So the first word means to judge. It's a word that paints a picture of a, of a just society where all injustices are dealt with. It's often labeled as rectifying justice. And everyone, I can say this with confidence, everyone loves this type of justice. Whether you are a believer or not, we love rectifying justice because it's, a, it's punishing the wicked. It's punishing those people over there doing their wicked deeds. The second principal word used for justice in the Old Testament is translated as the word righteousness. And this word is more concerned with the individual. Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, says this, this word speaks to each person's responsibilities and obligations and their relationships with other people, which enable a just society to come about. And this is the kind of righteousness that God wants Abraham to understand first by looking over this sinful city and understanding what he's about to do to it. And then, Ab then he wants Abraham to take what he's learning about God's righteousness and to pass it on to his children and his grandchildren. He wants Abraham to give his children and grandchildren this knowledge of the holy to understand what kind of God they are dealing with, what kind of God uh, they are worshiping, but ultimately what kind of God that loves them deeply. Because the destruction of Sodom was to be a great warning of the certainty of God's ultimate judgment of all of sin. We could say that this judgment upon Sodom is sort of a, a, a type of judgment that, that we see take place on the cross, on Jesus' cross. Clarence read for us earlier in our service, 2 Peter 2, uh, which explains this perfectly. I'm just going to read 6 through 10 again for us. But it says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Conclusion in all of that, that is that God is a righteous judge. He's just in all of his ways. He's consistent to his character 100%. Which leads us perfectly into our second point because it goes hand in hand with the first that tells us that God is just. Look at verses 20 through 21. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is extremely serious. 
I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. So here God is telling Abraham now his reasoning for destruction. So he says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah based upon my righteousness. And because of justice, uh, this is my reason for the destruction. He says, the cry against the wickedness of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah has reached his ears. The sin of this great this city is, is so great, God is saying, that it cannot be ignored. Now, not that, that God would ignore it, but it's communicated in this way by the author to say that to show the, the seriousness of the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. So serious that God goes down to see it. And maybe if you're thinking uh, about the, the Bible, it, 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 you're reminded of when God did this very thing, when he went down to see the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. The author wrote, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now this is not because he could not see from his vantage point that his binoculars were not working uh, very well that day, but rather it was the beginning of judgment and communicates to us the seriousness of sin. It's a terrifying scene if the mighty God has to come down to see your wickedness. You're not in a good spot if that's happening. But this terrifying scene confirms for us a couple of things about God. One, God is not ignorant of any wickedness. God is not ignorant of any wickedness, whether that be a sin considered very great and visible in your eyes. Sometimes we like to highlight those sins of, of murder and, and, and different things like that. Or that sin considered small and often unseen by others to the point where we just kind of brush it aside and don't think it a big deal. God is not ignorant of it. No matter how big or how small. Jesus describes it this way in Luke chapter 10. He's speaking specifically about the Pharisees here um, to his disciples, but it is very much relevant to us as well. Jesus says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Now, for those in Christ, those who, 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 uh, who have trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior, we can hear these words and pray alongside the Puritan who wrote this prayer concerning God's judgment. Um, if you don't have the Valley of Vision, which is a, a collection of Puritan prayers, I would encourage you to get a copy of this. But this is, this is a Puritan prayer that was written, and this is the prayer that we can pray right alongside of him because we're in Christ. Even though we know the judgment's coming, he prays, at the judgment day, Every event and circumstance of my life will be dealt with. The sins of my youth, my secret sins, the sins of abusing thee, of, a disobe of disobeying thy word, the sins of neglecting ministers' admonitions, the sins of violating my conscience, all will be judged. And after judgment, peace and rest, life and service, 
employment and enjoyment for thine elect. Now, for those of you not in Christ, those of you, those of you who have yet to receive Christ as your Savior and Lord, all said in this prayer holds true for you as well, whether you believe it or not. Accept the peace and rest, the life and service, the employment and enjoyment. Unfortunately for you, all will be judgment. You're in the same boat, we could say, as Sodom and Gomorrah is here right now before God. Yet God has not left you without hope. He has given you a way out of this boat. Luke records for us in the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 17. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. But the second thing this terrifying scene in verses 20 through 21 confirms is that God is not indifferent to the cry of the oppressed. He's not indifferent to the cry of the oppressed. Now that's something uh, we may be thinking as we watched Russian tanks roll into the Ukraine this week. And we might have been thinking, uh, is God even listening is God aware of the situation? There are innocent people who are being crushed and killed every day. Is he, is he listening? Does he see this? And the answer is a resounding yes. All we have to do is look back in the Bible to see this. Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. God says to Cain, after he has killed his brother Abel, a, a great injustice, we could say the, the first injustice uh, by human beings in the Bible, a murder, God says to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I hear the injustice that has been wrought upon him, and I will act. And then looking forward in the New Testament, James 5, 4 says, um, says that earned but unpaid wages cry out to God. James writes, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So this means that God is not indifferent to any justice, whether that be murder or just fraud. No matter how great or small we think it is, God is not indifferent in uh, in shakespeare's play the merchant of venice there's a court scene where the character portia warns the character shylock with these words he's he's just a he's just an uh wreaking havoc upon uh, this uh, one other character in 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 uh, shakespeare's play and she says this to him in the courtroom though justice be thy plea consider this that in the course of justice None of us, none of us should see salvation. So this is fitting to us all because justice is thy plea, isn't it? 
We are all pleading for justice, for God to be just, or for that person to be just towards us. We long to have a better and just world, don't we? We saw this in the protests that, we, that, that have taken place over the past several years. We want justice for whoever it is. But we have to ask ourselves the uncomfortable question, as one author has asked. How do we fare when our lives are put under the microscope of justice? Maybe it's our own picture of justice. How do we fare to that standard that we have of justice? And if justice is our plea, would any of us find salvation? And the answer to that is a resounding no, we would not. Not on our own. What we need is what our final point shows us. A God who is stepping in, we could say, from the outside, but a God who is merciful. Now, you might be thinking that God did not show mercy to Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, The very next chapter shows that they get demolished. They are leveled by, by fire and brimstone, and they are crushed. But I would argue that he has shown them mercy. We only have to look back to chapter 14 that we looked at uh, a few weeks ago to see this. They've seen God's mighty work through Abraham. They were not blind to this. They were spared by him in the war of the kings. If you remember that. They saw and heard from the man Melchizedek that the king of Sodom and Gomorrah was present when Abraham was interacting with Melchizedek, and if you know anything about Melchizedek, if you jump ahead into the New Testament, you know that he is a forerunner of Christ. So they are witness to this heavenly conversation. So what this shows us is that God has been extremely merciful to this city. God is long-suffering. He gives the wicked even time to repent. If you think of the story of Noah, when, Noah, when God comes to Noah and he says, build the ark for me because this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to destroy the world through a flood that no one had ever thought of or ever heard of. Uh, if you do the math, uh, God, gives, it doesn't, God gives 100 years between him telling Noah to build the ark and bringing the flood. There is this kind of respite, this time for, for people to, to hear the message that, that God has brought to Noah and to repent and believe. And here in Abraham's petitioning, we see God's willingness to continue to show mercy to this wicked city. But it has nothing to do with the wicked, but everything to do with his righteous one. Essentially, his righteousness, God's righteousness. God says, I will spare the entire city of of these wicked people if ten righteous can be found in it. You even see this in Abraham's petition. Abraham doesn't petition God on behalf of what he thinks is fair or unfair, which is sometimes our default. Well, that's not fair. You're not giving them an opportunity to repent and believe you shouldn't destroy that city. That's That's not where Abraham is pulling his petition from. He petitions him on behalf of righteousness. He petitions God on behalf of who God is. And there are, are there at least ten in the city that are living according to God's righteousness? And we learn pretty quickly that there is not. And so Abraham gives testimony to this in, in verses 32 and 33 when he stops his petition. 
It's a very abrupt end there to the chapter. You can just kind of see God kind of walking away and Abraham kind of walking away in the opposite direction because the conversation is done. Abraham understands. Because Abraham understood God's justice. But he also understood God's mercy. He's received it over and over again in his own life. We saw it back in chapter 12, didn't we? Did not Abraham deserve to be leveled right after he's given this wonderful promise that he will be a great nation and the father of many, and he, and he completely screws up. And God shows mercy to him because of his promises and his covenant with him. And this is what drives Abraham's petition in verses 22 through 33. This is why Abraham feels somewhat okay to keep going back to God and pleading with him. To say, can you not save based upon your righteousness? And what we learn in this back and forth between Abraham and God is that God is merciful. And the fact that he would, not, he would spare such a wicked city because of ten righteous, righteous people shows us this. I mean, that's just saying this was a large city. So you just imagine New York City, and God would spare that city if he was going to destroy it, um, Based upon ten righteous people in it? That's mercy. And it shows us that this is consistent with who he is. Which means that this is still true of him even today. We can look around our country and our world and ask, why doesn't God destroy the wicked? Why doesn't God wipe out this nation or, or, or kill this ruler? I mean, Vladimir Putin seems to be a good target right now. Why doesn't he just destroy this man who is caught wreaking all of this havoc across the world? But have you ever stopped and considered why God hasn't wiped you out? The Bible tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is what's going on inside of you and I. This isn't some evil ruler across the world. This is right here in our own hearts. And we can't escape it. We take it everywhere with us. And just like the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, we can't escape God's wrath that we deserve because of it. Unless, unless he shows mercy. And the only way God can show you and I mercy is by petitioning on behalf of righteousness. Specifically, the righteous one, Jesus Christ. So we, the unjust, are forgiven because of his mercy that he shows us in giving us his son. Psalm 85, 10 says, beautiful verse, it says, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. So what we see happening here, uh, or see the, the psalmist communicating, is the justice of God, because you can translate it in that way as well, and the mercy of God coming together in a beautiful embrace. And, and what we see are two opposite qualities coming together. Because if you remember, righteousness means being committed to doing what is right individually and in our relationships. 
So for God to stay consistent, he must do what is right towards our sin. Enter peace with the kiss. But now we have this tension. Yet this tension is, is wonderfully resolved at the cross of Christ. Because this is where steadfast love and faithfulness meet. This is where, where righteousness and peace kiss each other. This is, this is where God shows you mercy. You see, he doesn't wipe you out because he already did this to his own son. He shows mercy to you because justice has already been won at the cross. And in all of this, God has communicated to Abraham and to us who he is as God, that he is righteous, that he is just, and that he is merciful. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that we have been able to gather this morning to worship the God who is the righteous judge. A God who is consistent to who he is. A God that is consistent to his character. A God who, who acts according to his character. God, we are thankful that, that even though we deserve judgment, that we deserve your wrath, to be wrought against us as Sodom and Gomorrah uh, experience. God, that you have made a way for our escape through your righteous son, Jesus. God, thank you for, uh, make, thank you for uh, giving us Jesus at the cross. Thank you for, for um, enacting justice uh, through the violence and the beauty of the cross of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.